Welcome to the RSP Cast Scout Talk. I'm Matt Waldman. Joining me every other week, Russ Landy, U.S. Head of Scouting for the Montreal Alouettes, former NFL scout, good friend of the show, good friend personally. Always enjoy looking forward to just enjoying this hour of conversation that we're going to have. We've got some fun topics, Russ. Oh, no doubt. This is, as we, as I say every time, this is one of my highlights um, in working in football is getting to chat with you and the chance to hear a different perspective um, that sort of helps me open my eyes more to some of the things I need to do better. I love it. This is uh, truly, it's one of those things that I enjoy, but I also come away with so many ideas that I'm like, oh, I have to try that next time, or I have to look better at this and things like that. So I'm excited. Me too. And the feeling's mutual because it's great to be able to get the get the information that you provide and the insights that you provide based on the experiences that you've had that I'll, that, you, you know, that are completely different from my perspective and the perspective of the listeners who, who are big fans of the game. And, and yeah. so, so to begin with, I mean, let's talk about some current event things that have happened. The Titans, you know, John Robinson got fired. The GM got fired at this point in the year. You know, there's, you know, from the fan perspective and the media perspective, I hear things like, well, this was Amy Adams Strunk saying, you know what, that A.J. Brown trade during the draft didn't really work out all that well. And I got to see that, you know, put in our face live and up front. Um, and or maybe there was a GM coach struggle between Rabel and Robinson in terms of differences of opinion and and that the and the head coach won out. Um, but. I'm just curious, A, what your perspective is on this um, move, as well as when is there good a good time, if there is a good time at all, to fire a GM and that, with an NFL team? Well, you know, firstly, if you're going to fire a guy, this is not actually a terrible time to do it. Okay. And the reason I say that is if you're going to fire a GM and you're going to put his assistant, Ryan, who got promoted, at least for the interim job, and I think there's a good chance it could become permanent because if he and Coach Rabel work well together, why would you upset the card of a team that's been winning for a while? The good part is now Ryan will oversee the All-Star Games, the Combine, the interviews, whereas if he had been the assistant GM, there may have been some meetings and interviews that he may not have been a part of because he may have had to handle other duties uh assistant to GM, because sometimes the assistant GMs, director of player personnel, although they're involved with the decisions, there are times where the GM may fly with the head coach and the coordinator go work out a quarterback, and the assistant GM has to stay on site at home and make sure things are running. Well, in this case, he'll get to be in all the key situations. So you're not going to be playing from behind where I just think you never. there's no, never a good time, but this at least gives them Another few weeks before the All-Star Games, he can make sure the scouts feel comfortable, explain to them what's going on. Um, so I, I don't think it's a terrible time. It, to me, the weird part is why it happened. Rarely does a GM get fired of a team that's been going to the playoffs pretty regularly. Less than a year after he got an extension, I think he got a three- or four-year extension in February or March of this year. So to do those things... It tells me it's either one of two things in my eyes. And I haven't gotten any information. I haven't spoken to any of the people I know in Tennessee. This is just from poking around with other NFL people and mostly uh, NFL insider reporters saying, were you shocked? And all of them were shocked 
Okay. And it came down to everybody saying it's one of two things, which is either A, he and Vrabel clearly over the last year or two had become a little bit of a power struggle, and maybe Vrabel used over the past, I don't know, six months, one or two or different things that came up. He would say, see, I told you, this is why we need a new GM, this and this and this. And then Brown being the icing on the cake, this game, Vrabel could say, see, and the owner buys in. It's possible. The other possibility is that there's something going on within the dynamics of the office where people are not working well together and whatever it may be, whatever that not working well together is due to, they felt that John was the guy that was causing it and had to move on from him. So it's very weird. It reminds me a little bit, although better timing, of when the Panthers fired, uh, I think it was Dave Gettleman, literally like a week or two before training camp about 10 years ago. And that was sort of like, teams like, what's going on? How do you do that? Um, but this is similar because it comes out of the blue. Nobody expected it. And I think a lot of those people, unfortunately, in Tennessee in the front office, they have to be very nervous yeah. because no matter how much you say as an owner that things are good, we're winning, and we're not going to do anything drastic, that one line in the statement which said, Ryan will be there as the interim and we will begin the search for a new GM after the season, it almost sets the meter of, hey, Ryan is not in the discussion, which I don't think is the case. I do think he'll get consideration. But the fact that they would publicly say that makes you think they've already decided almost that they are going to go look outside the building. Yeah, that makes total sense. You know, I kind of want to I kind of want to add another idea. I had another idea that we didn't talk about you know, that we were going to do that I kind of want to discuss, which is the hiring of Deion Sanders. But before we do, I I love the. I love the thought of this. It does lay the groundwork well to to make the, if you're going to fire a guy and do it now, that he does get to be in part of the groundwork conversations and meetings that you need to set up what you're going to do with the draft. So I, I think that probably makes the most sense because I would have to think Mike Vrabel is, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm putting too much on, on NFL coaches, but I'd have to think the guy is wise enough to know that if I'm going to complain my way of getting a, lobby to get a guy out that I better not do that too often like that that's my one that's my one card yeah you're one I've shot played yeah. it and I played it for my career I mean yep. that's a career card that's yeah not the only way he gets another one is if he basically keeps his nose out of this search they hire their own guy and then he goes and wins the Super Bowl yes other than that he ain't you you it's rare for a coach to get to play that card yeah Exactly. Now, speaking of coaches, <clears throat> excuse me, had the conversation last night with Felix Sharp of Campus to Canton about Deion Sanders going to Colorado. And at the end of the day, you know, I've heard a lot of fans and a lot of, um, you know, media, they'll talk about Sanders because he is a, you know, he's a showman, you know, and, and certainly, he, you know, he's had all his players apparently sign agreements so that they can be filmed so that they can do the whole reality show kind of thing. And when he came in, he calls himself Coach Prime and he's talking in a way that it sounds like he's still a player. He actually, he's talking in a way that it sounds like comically, he's still the guy I remember 23 years ago when I was working at a Bennigan's as a waiter, which is a funny enough image as it is, with him coming in in a mustard yellow Italian suit 
in an empty place like he was Ric Flair walking through the double <laughs> doors with his two guys who were dressed more like me and talking through the entire empty restaurant as if like there were a packed house there to see him and just acting just obnoxious to be honest with you he was yep. obnoxious like i don't think he was obnoxious doing what he does now and what he does in the media but it was like he was practicing this was all practice for like trying to craft his public persona okay and great football player all of that but what i find interesting is that there's all this what he does is different and everything that he's done what he's doing is different is 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 it good is it not good is it all about him is it somewhat narcissistic is there's too much show and flash and all this but what i find fascinating is when i have listened to him before this and even with the recent colorado introductory conversation with the team really from what i see he's an old school coach who is basically um comfortable with the new school medium and what he's doing is, is he's leveraging his um, reputation among players as a flamboyant showman of a player, but underneath that, that they can relate to and want to aspire to or enjoy about him. But he can use that as equity to say, no, you're not going to wear hats. No, if you're not on time, this is what happens. I'm going to be a ruthless disciplinarian in terms of being strict about what I want to a certain degree because you've already seen how I've acted and what I and the success I've had. But what you don't know is the type of player I was and the worker I was as a player. And I'm about to show you that you can be both, but this is how it's going to happen. And on top of it, it seems that he took a lot of chances at Jackson State on some red flag guys, I heard, you know. So how else are you going to get them to perform if you don't have this, you know. So to me, I look at it like this. If if uh, if Nick Saban is the Stephen Wright of, of head coaches and Deion Sanders is, say, the Chris Rock or the Kevin Hart of NFL coaches – they, they all know how to tell jokes. They all understand how to be on stage and, and sell the way that they can sell within their personality. And they understand the game. And it's just, they're different flavors. One's an old school West Virginia dude and the other's an old school Florida guy in a new school um, package. Uh, am I wrong is, or is there more to it than that? No, I mean, I think the, the what you're hitting on is sort of the 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 anti or or not i shouldn't say anti but counter to what everybody's everybody's out there saying oh it's dion and he's just all flash and that's all he is when in reality i think dion is you, the coach is sort of two different people there's the guy who obviously grew up loving football was a great player um has been around and seen some great coaches so he understands what it takes inside the building coaching wise to be successful the other side of Dion is the guy who understood since he was a player the business side of this in terms of how do you market yourself, how do you put yourself out there, things like that. And by finding sort of the two and combining them, he's put himself in a great spot because he knows how to play the PR media game, which is so vital now, which was not as vital 15 years ago, to get players in your building. And once they're in the building, 
he sort of the, uh, he understands that you can't be the willy nilly anything goes coach. You gotta you gotta lay down the, the law and and put the rules in place. So I look at him and think, man, this is what you want because clearly a lot of college success comes from recruiting. We understand that you have to be able to recruit great talent. That I think he's already shown. If you can get five stars to come to Jackson State, you're doing something unbelievable. <laughs> you can get them anywhere. Exactly. If you can do that, you can get them anywhere. So now he's going to get the players that he may have gotten some to Jackson State. He's going to get triple, quadruple the talent to come to Colorado. And then you add in the facilities, his ability to lay down the rules. That to me, it's the potential is there for him to have historic success at Colorado. Yeah. I would agree. I absolutely agree with that. And it's another people are talking about, well, he's gunning for now a power five job, you, you know, after this, it'll be the next step. And maybe it will, if it doesn't work out perfectly at Colorado, but I don't see how he could go wind up there and never leave, or at least not yeah, leave for a I long mean, time. I mean, let's, let's also look at, I mean, Oregon or USC, I'm pretty sure their coaches, like, I don't think Lincoln Riley's looking to leave anytime soon. And if he has the success in the Pac-12 that USC and Oregon have had over the last 10 years, I don't think he's going to be looking to go anywhere. Yeah. You, 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 that's a big league football program in, or conference. And if you win big there, he'll get whatever he wants. He'll own yeah. the state of Colorado. I'm sure that I'm sure when Jimmy Johnson went to Miami that people were saying, well, he's he's hoping that if things work out that maybe he could coach in the Big Ten one day. And now we're looking, you know, instead, you know, he had a huge run and then Miami became the job to have, you know, when they, there was a vacancy, but that's, you know, that's how it happens. He, you have people who make programs and he could yep. make that program. So let, I think the interesting thing is as opposed to being at Jackson state, where I would bet the majority of the kids he was recruiting and getting were Florida over to Texas in that, that corridor. Now in Colorado, he'll still go after some of those, but he's going to probably feast on the California yes. pipeline. Yes. And a lot of those kids, now obviously USC is in and of itself, their history, and UCLA has been very good this year. But those California kids, they're going to be looking at it saying, do I really want to go to Washington? Do I want to go to Oregon? Or do I want to go play with Prime? Yeah. And I go out to Colorado in a great city, Yes. Uh, an excellent university. I mean, he could own, he could be a situation where he's winning 10, 11 games every year at Colorado in a great situation where the pressure also will rarely be what it is at some of these major universities. Yeah. It's a, and my little brother is probably jumping over the moon because he's a, he's a Colorado alum. So he will, uh, he, it'll be interesting. I'll be, it'll be interesting to catch up with him down the line and see what he thinks about thinks about this but i would imagine from a fan perspective being a football fan that that he's probably excited i would i would i would think that he would be i but, can't envision how you couldn't be yeah i really can't either you know but uh a, a guy who drew a lot of excitement during his career was rob gronkowski and certainly when you watch him um adam harstead of football guys and i had a conversation about him several weeks ago being kind of a unicorn of tight ends you know that he's a he was the, he might have been the prototype, all-time prototype, um, in the same tier as some players like Mike Ditka or we, you know, along those lines. But how realistic is it to to look at a player like Rob Gronkowski and say, 
there's going to be that that should be the expectation for the prototype because when you think about the tight end position nowadays it's like it's so many sub positions based on what offense is there and to be that big that fast and that skilled in so many various aspects seems unrealistic am i what do you think well i don't know if, i mean i think it's just i don't know if you ever want to say you don't want that as the goal no, you're but right. I think you have to be realistic in saying it. A, it's uncommon. The odds of finding that again are small. And B, the other thing I would add to that is for all the greatness, and obviously one of the greats I've ever seen, his being so physical and playing that type of game also led to a lot of missed games. Yes. Whereas guys maybe like Kelsey, who are big athletic guys, but maybe not as violent in everything they're doing, don't get hurt as much. Yeah. Or guys like Antonio Gates, who caught what seemed like 17,000 balls. And while he was a good, solid positional player in terms of blocking and doing stuff, never dominated anybody. But until the last year or two of his career, never was hurt. Played yeah. every game, caught like 400 balls a game, and it was fine. So that may be the goal, but what's the trade-off? And even if you look, Kittle has some of the similar traits. He's not as big, I don't think. But he plays with that aggressive, go-get-you type attitude. And he has struggled to stay healthy. Yeah. And maybe part of it is is that when a tight end is blocking safeties and undersized linebackers, a guy like Ronkowski, a guy like Kittle can hold up. But when a guy that's 250, 245, 255 has to constantly go in there and battle 280, 290, 300, maybe it's just not doable. So even though you would love that, maybe, A, that's not the – Maybe you want to have two different guys. Yes. Maybe you want to have Mercedes Lewis and the 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 Pitts kid. Yeah. Yeah. Let the, let Pitts go out and do its thing, and let the big physical dominant locker do that, because that way maybe there's less injuries. But yeah, it's I mean, hey, finding a guy like Gronk, that's it's a it's just you're not going to get that very often. Yeah. And so what happens if you get say we get a guy in the next three to five years who turns out to be com comparable to Gronk in terms of does everything really well. It seems to me that as a GM or a coach, you would you would think, look at if you're being wise, maybe you look at that lesson and go, listen, I know he could be Rob Gronkowski, but being Rob Gronkowski means when we need him most, he might not be on the field at first periods of yep. time. Or the second half of the year, he may not be the same player yes. because he's beat up. So if you're a coach that excels because you're good at looking at your players and figuring out what they do and don't, and you have a tight end who maybe he is 260 and he's really competitive, but he runs like a gazelle and has natural hands and elite, reading, elite receiving skills, maybe you say, hey, yes, three or four times a game, we're going to let him tussle with the big boys as a blocker. Yeah. But the other 15 times, we want to slam that defensive end. We're going to let our power big tight end come in, and we're going to let this guy, who's a world-class athlete, be out in space. Because, And we've talked about this before, but a big athletic tight end is such a mismatch opportunity that can change the offensive game plan and force the defense into uncomfortable positions. Wouldn't you be better off forcing the uncomfortable coverage situations with him and bring in a big guy yeah. to be the blocker. Because when you put Gronk, and this isn't to knock Gronk, obviously, but when Gronk was staying in as a blocker, 
no matter how good he was, it didn't alter the defensive game plan because he still wasn't as good as the tackle. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's like, yes, a great run-blocking tight end is enormously valuable, but it doesn't change the structure of your defense. You're still going to play. Yeah. You may play a guy a little bit more outside or whatever it may be, but it, the odds of your having to change your defense that puts you at great risk for a 70-yard play are small. Whereas if you're putting this guy outside as a receiver, he has a chance to impact and change things. And to me, if I got a guy with that type of talent, yes, like I said, three or four times a game, I have to do it just to keep things honest. But I'm going to keep him away from the violence and let him change games. I mean, look at guys like Darren Waller and Kittle in the last two years. When they're healthy, they are game changers. Yeah. it's a, it's a, a And especially when you talk about how you would use Gronkowski when they used him right it was with Aaron Hernandez or even Martellus Bennett and when they were both able to be healthy for the few games they were where you could motion Gronkowski to one side with you'd start with maybe with a two tight end set and play heavy and then you'd motion him out and suddenly now he has a he has a matchup with a weak side linebacker that's just or a safety playing him tight and it's just like yeah this is over I mean yep. like you and know you have two coming. tight ends it's less time you have to pound, literally expose him to the violence. So, yes. yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. We all would love to have Ron Gr the great a player of Gronkowski's talent because they're so dynamic. But maybe taking that player and not exposing him as much. Now, I will say the other uh, the other problem you run into is, and you know this just as well as I, when coaches get a rare special talent, they have a hard time dialing greedy. back and saying, we're not going to throw it to him 14 <laughs> times a game. And some of those games with Gronk, he would catch ball after ball after ball after ball. And it was like, there comes a point where people do break. Yeah, for sure. Well, one thing I'll say is this, is that if you're, uh, you're listening out there and you're looking for that next tight end, you're looking for players in your fantasy league who can – make a difference for you, especially at the, you know, at the skill positions, the rookie scouting portfolio in his 18th year is now available for, for pre-sale. Um, in terms of pre-ordering it, um, you can order it for a low, low price of 1995 through December 22nd. And then the, uh, the regular rate is available from the 23rd on for 2195. You get a pre-draft, um, profiles of at least 150 skill position players you get position um, specific rankings and cheat sheets that includes position with posi within position sub roles like running backs and satellite backs wide receivers split in the slot or bigger receivers move tight ends versus tight ends who are going to be more working at the line you get tier groupings in your rankings players who i discuss why i think they're overrated or underrated or developmental prospects and the, there's chapters dedicated to each position and recent draft history with grading sheets for each position. And I even give you a glossary of criteria used to grade the player. So it's a transparent process. And then you get a post-draft one week after the draft. So you take all of that work that's being done studying the film, and then I put it in to matching with where these guys fit, you know, contract-related outlooks with their depth charts, trade market analysis for fantasy leagues, and then even rankings that show like the sweet spot of where I've ranked them versus where other leagues are drafting those players. So if I say I like Patrick Mahomes or Nick Chubb more than the consensus and they're, those guys are going in the, the late second round, well, I'm, I may tell you they're the best two players in their draft class, 
but you don't have to pick them in the top five. You can wait until the middle of the second round or the early second round and still have some wiggle room to get them and get more players as a result of that. So the RSP and its 18th theory, you get all of that, plus a newsletter that comes out monthly that gives you kind of a look a year ahead on the on the next draft class and some some preview scouting reports on players that may be below the radar. And uh, you get all that for $21.95 at mattwaldman.com, or you can learn more at mattwaldmanrsp.com. And I, and I will add, having been in this a long time, in the CFL, as Matt has learned from my tenures up there in our friendship, most teams like Montreal have one person covering the United States. And there are other people in the office that obviously help at different times. And we'll get assignments like grading players at NFL training camps and such. But to me, the great value besides just being able to read about players that Matt puts out in RSP is when I get his book, when the NFL draft goes and then they sign all the undrafted guys, I just sort of go through my list and cross off everybody that signed in the NFL and the remaining players that Matt liked before I do any other work, I grade them all because those are players that if I just find two or three a year, those are guys that in general are not on any other CFL radar because they don't have a resource like Matt. Now, I don't know if it'd be great to put this out there because obviously those other teams could not buy it and do the same thing I'm doing. But in terms of if you want to know the quality and respect of Matt's work that I have, that's it. I use Matt as sort of my uh, what am I missing skill position-wise? Where can I find guys that – because I don't have the eyes to go see 400 schools. So there's going to be players I don't even hear about. And Matt always has the sort of the lowdown on guys that I either have never heard of or never had the chance to watch film on. So well, that's it's awesome. hugely yeah. valuable. Well, I appreciate that. And, and you know, one of those guys that, that I thought might wind up being a guy you would be taking a look at, but he managed to get drafted at the very last pick by the San Francisco 49ers, Mr. Irrelevant, and a guy who I did a little bit of, um, I did a little bit of scouting report re- consulting for his quarterback coach who worked with him this year, Will Hewitt, um, um, Brock Purdy. So Brock yeah. Purdy had himself a nice... He's a little relevant now. Yeah, he's a little relevant now. He had a nice game for the 49ers stepping in as the injury substitute for Jimmy Garoppolo. There was a lot of talk that maybe they would take Baker Mayfield um, that after he got cut, but the the Rams got him. Maybe, that's, maybe either they beat him to the punch or the 49ers was like, nah, we're good with Purdy because we know that Garoppolo might be able to come back. And, you, you know, when you look at Purdy, he did well on third down. He did a great job with tight windows in in zone coverage, throwing receivers open and protecting them. He um, he executed the scheme very well. He stood in there no against pressure. His his pocket presence was always to me a strength, and you could see that he was willing to do that. The biggest issue with him that I saw in film was that, kind of like Kirk Cousins, I always joke that he he kind of tries his he tries to write checks that his body can't cash with certain types of throws. Um, or certain targets that he would do where he's like the, the kid at the pancake house who orders way too much food and you're like, please don't do that again. Like he, you know, he had a couple of throws like that where you're like, don't throw across your body, my man, or or don't throw that. If, if you're not going to throw that on time, don't throw that at all. Um, but for his first game, it was good. So what did you think about Purdy? And what do you think about the 49ers? Do they go look for somebody else as a starter per se or do they look for someone that's more of a we're going to give purdy a chance but if he really falters 
this guy could be in our hip pocket and we could feel okay with that. Well, first, I think I think a lot of what you said about Purdy is right. I think when I looked at him, what I saw was a smart, heady kid with maybe just enough physical skill to be in the league. But there were going to be some things that you said, I wish there was a little more. Yes. Like if he's making the, the far side 12, 15-yard out throw, I'm going to be a little nervous. Yes. Because <laughs> when, unless the timing is perfect, that's one of those ones where I'm going to be thinking, oh, my, that could be a pick six. Because yeah. I just – I don't see that just that ability. Like I said, if the timing's perfect, but if he's average with his timing, the ball's going to be hanging. Yeah. And the DB is going to already have turned because the receiver will be out of his break. That's what I look at with him in terms of is he does he have enough to stick as a starter? That's the question physically. But mentally, I think it's there. And I think the thing you see with him is he's not lacking in confidence. And, and you need that to be a starter in this league. Um, additionally, I think for them, bringing in a guy like Baker at this point, not that I don't think Baker physically could probably do it, but – He's he literally would be getting a playbook. He's not going to be able to learn it in time to make an impact. What they did bringing in a guy like Josh Johnson, who's been around for what seems like 30 years, and this is now his 14th team, but he's played this offense before. So I think they look at it and say, hey, we're going with Purdy, ride or die, until Garoppolo is healthy. And if Purdy ends up being awful, which I don't think he'll be awful, I think he's going to be more conservative with each game because I think defense is going to start to figure out they're going to take things away, and Shanahan is going to beat into his head. Don't take gambles. We're a pretty good dang team. If he goes sideways, you can put in Josh Johnson, who he's probably never going to be the consistent guy with the tools to make every throw, but he can avoid mistakes, make plays with his feet, even though he seems like he's about 50 because he's been in the league forever, and carry that offense the way it's supposed to be carried, even if he can't make all the big plays. I don't think Baker in the short term could have done that. Now, maybe next year or a year down the road, if, if they had brought in Baker and said, hey, we're, we're bringing you in, you got three more years on your deal, that's a different story. And that might make some sense because it's not like this kid is 34 and on the tail end. He's still young. Yeah. There's still something to work with. But I think for this year, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And for them, whether it's Garoppolo next year or not, in terms of if they decide to resign, we know Lance at some point is going to be the young guy getting a chance. So does bringing Baker in really have any value now or in the future? Probably not. Yeah. Whereas for the Rams, it makes perfect sense yeah. because Stafford probably is done. They don't know if any of their other guys are even good enough to be on the roster. Why not roll the dice for a month and just see if Baker's a guy that maybe you can make a reclamation project? Yeah, without a doubt. And I think that that's, and you've talked about this often in a, you know, that's, that's always been a good teaching point is that teams usually take in a player like Baker Mayfield when they had a high grade on him and a high enough grade, at least to say, let's see what's here. Maybe it just didn't work out where he was before. Maybe he just needed some time to grow. You, you know, maybe this experience in Carolina will give him that opportunity to mature and we can give him that environment where we're going to reap the benefits of that maturation. Um, yeah, I mean, I look at, and, and given everybody's different, but in terms of giving credit, but the year the Browns played, and I think it was 2020, when they crushed it and everything, people can say the running game, the offense line, whatever, but Baker did some very good things. 
Yep. There were definitely some throws he made that season on the move within the pocket that were quality NFL starter plays. Now, can he do it for the long term and consistently enough to be a starter? I don't know. Yeah. But if you're a team with Matthew Stafford, who is without question near the end, and you don't know if either Waff, I think it's Walford or yeah, Perkins, Perkins is the long term answer, where what's the harm? It costs you literally a million three yeah. to get two months with the kid. And you can figure out, A, if you think physically it's there, and B, you can see if mentally you guys click, because I think he's still only 26 or 27 years old. Right. So well, there's no harm for a team like the Rams, whereas I think the 49ers, it would have been a mistake. Yeah, I think that makes total sense. And it's funny when you talk about Purdy, because he reminds me of a player that I learned a big lesson on early on that I just had rated way too high, but I loved him as a player. It was Bruce Gridkowski, the former Toledo um, yep. quarterback who he could move. He made, he, he was a point guard type of quarterback. Yes. A hundred percent. Very much in the Purdy mold. And he, you know, he was a preseason quarterback rating leader and, you know, Gruden used him for a bit, but what you saw was those passes hung in the air forever and defenses were able to take it away. And he was a fine backup in the league. I mean, yep. you know, but he was not, a top end starter, and that no, was, and you know who that lesson. reminds me of is the kid with the Chargers. Similar lesson. I learned it before, so I knocked his grade down. But the Easton Stick kid, yeah, athletic kid, very quick release, good decisions, and anything within a small box, perfect. But when it's time to 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 muscle up and make those rip throws, the eighteen yard digs or the twelve yard far side out throws, that son of a gun looks like someone's carrying it there. Yeah. And and those are the the, the the thing we often talk about, I know we've talked about a ton, is arm strength is probably the biggest reason for mistakes evaluating quarterbacks because people fall in love with the cannons. But there is a minimum yes. that you need. And that's part of what I think people sort of, they gloss over when they start saying, oh, arm strength isn't everything. Yeah, 100%. It is far from everything. But there is a minimum that without that, the defense doesn't even have to, defend the whole field and if that's the case it becomes so easy to defend and that's one of the lessons i've worked with and purdy to me is a great example does he fit the backup or can he be an andy dalton yeah. where, where is that line to me andy dalton has always been that not and i'm not trying to knock him but that bottom measure of just enough arm strength to be a quality starter yeah just just above journeyman you yes, know, exactly. And a, he was a quality player. Yeah. yeah. I'm not trying to knock him in that. No. And that's and that's the thing. And I think that you hit on this perfectly is the nuance that scouts have to understand when you're evaluating players that it's not about that doesn't matter a certain trait doesn't matter, a certain quality doesn't matter. It's about it's under or or matters too much. It's about there's a baseline. Do you understand what the baseline is and understand that a, that it is a baseline and what a baseline really means and then when you when you when you can look at it with that perspective i think then you end up in a position where you have a lot more success with how you're looking at the player how you're communicating what that player can do um to the people that you're working with as opposed to saying he's no good you know you can good or no good it's more like Good if we're going to do this. Good if we're going to do that. Good if you're going to put him in this role. Put him good if you're going to have these types of players around him. But you know, but if not, then go the other direction. That way, so when they, 
you know, they see an Andy Dalton have success with Cincinnati and go, well, we were considering him, but people were saying he can't do these things and, and look what he's doing. And, and you don't have to go back and explain yourself about that. You can, exactly. they, they know exactly what they're heading into and they go, this is why we didn't pick him, And we feel good about that. So that when, and even from, if we're looking from the most cynical range of the PR standpoint in the interview, if they ask the GM, well, why didn't you guys, you know, this guy's having success and you guys picked this quarterback, what's going on? You know, you can say, well, you know, we knew Andy Dalton could do these things, but he couldn't fit in these situations. So one of the things that I want to want to touch upon too, that you, we talk about arm strength and talking about how, you know, certain baselines, there's also things that we often hear in this industry of what can't be taught, you know? And, and I think that, part of that conversation really is from a more refined perspective is it's hard to teach, you know, Terry McLaurin, when you watch him catch a football, he's one of maybe four guys I've ever scouted who can catch the ball the way he does in a technically unsound way and still be considered a high end starter in the NFL. Golden Tate and to a lesser extent, Ted Ginn and early Doucette were other guys that could trap a football like that consistently and go, that's horrible technique for what you would expect at this level. But I'm okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna target him and he's gonna find a way to catch that ball. Um so there are exceptions to the rule, but but at the same time, you know, we also think about resiliency and what's tough and and it's tough to teach a certain level of resiliency. And I think of this story that I shared with you before the show about Larry Holmes getting off getting coming off the canvas after in a heavyweight championship fight with Ernie Shavers, known as one of the hardest punchers of all time, getting knocked down and then learning later that Teddy Atlas, the trainer of Mike Tyson, who helped train Mike Tyson with Customato, you know, was with Customato during that Holmes fight. And D'Amato said that changed Larry Holmes because what I didn't know is that Larry Holmes, this guy who tied Rock, I think beat Rocky Marciano's record of title defenses, consecutive title defenses, was a you know he trained with Ali was a sparring partner of Ali's and he had that style but he was known among boxing circles as being kind of soft as not having the stuff that like that a finesse guy be a champion he was a finesse guy who that if you if you bullied him or you overpowered him he was going to melt like ice cream and that and then and that he had an amateur fight with a guy by the name of Nick Wells who knocked him down and he just cratered like just was in a shell after that. And Customato at that time told Teddy Atlas, he goes, yeah, that's, that's hard to teach. If you don't have that, you're probably anybody you face, who's going to be able to, to be able to bully you around. Don't count on it. And in the pro game, you, I wouldn't count on this guy being a high end heavyweight, uh, a great, a great heavyweight. And then when they saw that fight, he turned and looked at him and he goes, that's the moment that's going to change his career. Like he didn't say it that way, but that's what he meant. And I just wonder, you know, Adam Harstead brought up Joey Harrington um, in, our, in the last podcast I did that will, be, that, that will be out tomorrow. And he brought up Joey Harrington saying that Harrington was a guy who, you know, didn't want to make mistakes. And then when he w- ended up in, when he got cut from the Lions, he realized, well, what do I got to lose now? You know, so I'm going to give myself permission to be the guy I should have been. And he played better. He had a better career at that point. It didn't turn out to be what people expected. Um, 
from the mass consensus. But our, you know, I also look at Ryan Matthews. I knew his trainer, and he said that, you know, after he fumbled his for, in his first game, he didn't want to come out of the locker room, and that they had to send the trainer in to to convince him to come out and play. And I say this because he's had he had a good career. Oh yeah, and I don't want to and I don't want to mm-hmm. bang on the guy. I would never want to bang on the guy while he's still playing to that level yep. and bring something up that up. But at that time, I was told that about him because he was a terrific prospect. And maybe he didn't have the next Ladanian Tomlinson career, but you know you can see he still that was awfully good for still, a good stretch. Yeah. Exactly, he was a dominant player for a four or five year period. That's exactly right, you know. And so when you look at those things, are there things that are just when you think of that are difficult to teach, and it's because maybe we don't understand as human beings how to teach it on a level that's that the way that we can teach a rip technique or we can yep. you know teach somebody how to read progressions um what are some of those things well firstly because it, it, it harkens back to an old line when i was at the rams as a gopher and, and i know you've never been in a building but one of the unique things when you're in a building is when you're there every day you get to know the players most of on a superficial level but the guys you actually get to know pretty well during the season are the punter and the kicker and the snapper. Because other than when they're on the practice field, they have about an hour of meetings, but they can't leave. They got to be there from beginning to end. <laughs> These guys wander the hallways trying to figure out stuff to do. So Sean Landetta used to come up and spend an hour or two up in the scouting area, whether it's the video guys or in my office. And we would chat about all sorts of things all the time. And one of the things I always found interesting when I would ask him about, like, are you nervous? We're bringing in this guy. He goes, you know, he goes, punters, kickers. He goes, there's a lot of similarities. And he goes, until they can figure out that every single kick is your career, he goes, until you can get past that, I don't ever have to worry because I got him beat. And that's sort of when you were talking about that reminds me, it's like with the mental sort of toughness, the guys that don't worry about their job, they don't worry about making the mistake. That is so hard to teach. It's almost impossible. And the other one that you and I have talked about that I think people will say, oh, it's crazy. It's easy to teach is teaching a quarterback to throw the ball away. It yes. seems like it should be a rudimentary thing to teach. But I really, truly believe a lot of the time that is something that is ingrained since they were five, that when they were five, whether they were on a bad team in junior high or whatever, and felt they had to carry the team, or that just was the way they played at five, and it's carried their whole life, to change a player's mentality, to understand that oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes, when things are going sideways, the fan in the stands is the best person to throw it to. And that the, the mental toughness and the willingness to throw it away are two things I find very hard, because there are so many players who have come into the league. Things looked like they were going well, but then they went sideways on the field for a few weeks and they never could regain the confidence. And and finding a way to keep your confidence, that, that quarterback, and I know we've discussed it in the past, who early in a game has a key play, reads the defense, says, whoop, this defense calls for me to make the quick slant pass to the right side. And he drops back and throws it, and it's touched down the other way. Intercepted, gone. And then four series later in the second half, the same exact or virtually the same alignment comes up, 
and he, in his mind, knows he has to go back to that throw, a lot of quarterbacks, especially guys that don't make it, even if that is the throw, they will not make the throw. They will go to an alternate throw because they're nervous. Whereas the guys like the Bradys, even the Rivers, who I don't consider at that level of the Brady, but still was very good. They understand confident. They just have that natural, just narcissistic belief it's going to be okay, and they will throw that ball again. And the guys that will do that, they have a chance. And I'm not saying you want gamblers, but they have to have a confidence that when they make a decision, it's right, and they don't have to second-guess it. And it's a very hard thing. You can do all the interviewing you want. You don't know how to get in their head to figure out you can't have a guy at quarterback second guessing. It has to be a reactionary thing, and it's got to be confidence. And I think sometimes you can never regain it. I know I was told the story. I didn't have firsthand knowledge. And you may, I don't know if this was right before you started your RSP or not, but there was a kid that came out of Louisville, went in the second round named Brian Brom, went to the Green Bay Packers. As a junior, he had been all world. Yes. And as a senior, the offense changed. He had some ups and downs. Packers took him in the second round, and he actually and they ended up taking the kid in the seventh round. They Matt Flynn, and a year later, Flynn was the number two, and and Brom was out of the league. I think within two years, and the guy I knew at the Packers a little bit told me that Brom got there and the confidence was gone by the time he got there. That his senior year had changed his confidence in throwing. Now I don't know how true that is. I've never spoken to. Brian, so I don't. I'm not trying to disparage him sure. or anything like that. But that's what I was told is that when they had him, they were very excited. They thought he could be the future, um, and they were just surprised that he never just seemed to have that unwavering confidence that good quarterbacks have to have. Yeah, that makes sense. And you know, I, I remember scouting Brian Ron and Matt Flynn. And Ron had uh, Michael Bishop, the running back who played with the Raiders. Not Michael yep, Bishop, the big kid, Michael yeah. Bush. Bush, Bishop that's the, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bishop was the, the, the Kansas State quarterback. The Kansas State quarterback, you know. But yeah, Michael Michael Bush. But um, but yeah, what you touch on is interesting because in some ways, the whole confidence to make the play, and the ability to let it go can work at cross purposes. And 100%. so that player has to find that um, balance to an outlook, maybe to say. I have the confidence to throw this ball away to know that I can make the play later, that I'm going to get them later. But yep. to, that's a mature, refined level of confidence. And when you've been, when you've been basically enabled to be the playmaker from, you know, junior varsity on through this level, yeah, it's hard to turn that off. And I see it with players. Like I'm watching, I watched Will Levis yesterday, um, and I watched a few, scouted a few games of his. And I noticed like a lot of quarterbacks, that a lot of young quarterbacks like him and top prospects often, they don't throw the ball away unless they're retreating and the defender is in their chest. Until that moment, they are buying time. And what ends up happening is where the mistakes occur is when they're buying that time and they had a chance to throw it away. And now they're trying to throw across the field. Or yep. they're getting hit from behind because they didn't see the guy, but they got away from him once, but they don't realize it. in the NFL, when you get away from him once, that's only that you bought enough time to throw the ball away. You didn't get it. Yep. And the SEC kids tend to be better with that to a degree. But 
they learned it a little bit earlier. Like I think an Anthony Richardson has learned that when he faces the LSUs and the Georges of the world, that that when he gets away from them to one side, that he better he better be looking to throw that ball, and if not, he better throw it out in the stands. And he's good at it. Whereas Will Levis, I watch, he reminds me of guys like Trubisky, where it was like it the guy had to be like in his or even Pickett had to be in his chest for him to go, okay, I'm giving up. And that's that that doesn't work that way. No, and it's a really hard thing to get a gauge on, like what leads to that. I've always thought, is it players who played at small high schools that carried a high school on their back and but were so good they went to a major college, but it was a major college in a big conference and that college was not a good one. Missouri so would be better an school. Missouri, Vanderbilt, yeah. those type of schools where they're playing with the big boys, but every game their quarterback has to be a world beater yeah. to be able to be that guy. And that's one of the things I've always wondered, does that sometimes require, and, and to me this may be the perfect example, not that he was ever a gambler, but maybe the time as a backup helped become make Geno Smith more of a guy that understands that, whereas when he first got in there was a lot of escape and run, not so much throwing it up for grabs, but there was the run around. Yeah. And when you see, and you've probably seen this with all your scouting is, and fans don't want to hear it ever is, a lot of the time, the most athletic quarterbacks who can make the most plays scrambling take the most sacks because they refuse to realize it's better sometimes to get second and 10 or third and 10 or punt the ball away than to be in second and 27. Yes. Because that's when bad things happen. And it's not that they mentally don't know it when you talk to them on the sideline. It's when the bullets are flying, they're so special athletically that has helped them immensely throughout their lives playing the game that they don't want to give up on the play. They keep thinking they can pull the rabbit out of the hat. Yeah, I think the two that are difficult, I'll have to give you two that I think are difficult too that, are, that I haven't seen anybody overcome. One is a running back thing is accelerating into contact. You know, there are not a lot of guys who do that anyway in the league anymore. But the guy who's who reminds me of an old school back who will do that and is still in the league right now is Leonard Fournette. Leonard Fournette still, when he's feeling good, he will he will drop the pads and he will accelerate in the contact and finish that way. There are not a lot of backs that do that. So to me, if you if you're a back who isn't very powerful and you don't at least if you start to slow down to try and make a move or turn your back, you're not going to – I don't see you doing long-term a way of correcting that. No. And and then another one to me that's quarterback-related is, to me, is the biggie that it's the hardest thing to figure out, which is the best quarterbacks, when they see an opening, the ball comes out. I mean, immediately. There's no extra hitch. There's no extra – pitter-patter with their feet there's no extra pump they 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 see it and they trust it and it's the confidence to deliver the line at the right time and there are so many first round prospects who can't do that and baker's a good example of a guy that you know when we talk about accuracy he had accuracy off the charts at oklahoma but when you watched him one on against man coverage you would see the pitter-patter of feet and he might complete the pass, but it was at the expense of the player who was catching it. 
having to make a much harder catch, if at all, um, if not getting knocked out. Whereas three steps earlier, if he had thrown that ball, you know, and it's not just him. Deshaun Kaiser, no. Alex Smith, who had a very good career, um, yep. did that as well. But that's different than a Patrick Mahomes, or I'd even say a Chad Kelly. Chad Kelly was a guy who, yep. who he and Mahomes, I liked them so much because they had that. It was just instant. Like they, they did not care. And we saw with Mahomes, you talk about the example of the guy going to the going to the well multiple times just this past week marquez valdez scantling who you know is trying to catch like terry mclaurin drops the ball in the end zone on one play and then the later in this um in the game he has a deep shot the deep post between the safety and the corner that if he just turned back to the end of the thrown ball and high pointed it he catches the ball instead he uses underhand technique and waits for the ball and the defender's in his chest and just knocks it out easily. Well, the very next play, Mahomes goes to him again, not to the same same post, but the same distance downfield on more of a deep crosser, I think, at this point. And he catches it the same way, but Mahomes went back to the well on him, even though he already had dropped the ball twice. You know, And that's yep. a quarterback going, listen, if... That's the confidence to say, I have confidence in my coaching staff. If this guy drops this ball again, he ain't going to be back in the in the game. Exactly. You know, yeah. so I'm going to keep going to him because he's open. I'm not going to alter my decisions based on his behavior. And that's yep. a confidence factor. Oh, it's 100% confidence. And to me, and I started doing it probably three years ago with the class I teach about the scouting and all that is, I used to always talk about quarterbacks. I have, a, I have a list, and I go through with the list one day as quarterbacks, and here are the things I have released quickness. And I finally started sort of explaining that there are two parts of release quickness. I said there's the physical. You can yes. look at the upper body from when the ball starts moving to when it comes out. And I said the harder part, and I said some quarterbacks, you can never really figure it out. I said some, it's just so difficult. But I said if you can try from watching film to identify when they – determine they want they that's the guy they want from that instantaneously instant it, from that moment to the moment the ball actually starts to move that's that mental release quickness yes and that's a combination of the processing speed and confidence to see it and balls out yep. and when you watch guys and to me while he may not have the greatest stats to compare to brady or rogers or whatever but if you want to see someone who had it, just go watch Dan Marino. There may oh. never have been a player who – he he. it was literally like his brain was literally attached to the ball. Because yeah. the moment it saw it, the ball started moving. It was out in a flash. Yeah. And that's a rare skill to have. He didn't think, you know. No, and, it was all reactionary, and that's what it has to be for yeah. a quarterback. And I just saw this movie for the first time because, you know, my wife's on some business right now, and I know I'm never watching this movie with her – in the um in the house because she's not going to want to watch it when we have downtime and it was this the the sequel to top gun okay oh okay you know yep. so i'm i'm like sure i'm gonna watch it we grew up with this with this movie why not let's see what the sequel's about so i i turned it on yesterday and there's this whole the whole thing is about you know one of the underlying themes is about the relationship between tom cruise's character maverick and his former wingman's um, or former co-pilots um, 
sun and and how that the sun overthinks things and so and how maverick is the classic dan marino basically just totally get the ball out don't think about it just do you know and then the other one's really good but he holds himself back by overthinking and there's a simplistic kind of story to it's a simplistic way of kind of saying yeah that's I love how you talk about though as a release thing that it's a mental release quickness and and I think the way you know for me I found one of the ways it's been helpful and it's not always automatic but it is the footwork if I see the extra step with the feet or the extra movement with the ball or the extra movement with the body that's it's like a stutter yeah um, rather than just trusting what they're saying and so when you see that that's a that's a valuable thing to have and you know i want to end this just talking about maybe a couple of players that we've seen because i've watched i've watched anthony richardson and will levis recently um and i've did a i did a film room on on richardson and i was really pleasantly surprised based on what little i had heard about him i thought his mental processing of the game and his confidence and ball placement to to account for the defenders who were not directly responsible for covering the receiver, his manipulation of them, his manipulation of or and placement of throws was really good. And his pocket movement was really sound. His footwork was great. And then I listened, I heard about Will Levis, who's got, you know, Rich Scangarello as a quarterback coach, and he's, you know, and all these things. And I'm watching him, and it was fascinating because I saw a a quarterback with physical tools, but I saw one who his footwork, you know, you, you ideally, I mean, footwork, it, footwork and mechanics are one of those things that it can be different for every quarterback and still work. But you can see when footwork isn't working for a quarterback and for him, like Zach Wilson. Yes. And, and with him, you see the midline of the back foot to me is kind of like the butt of the gun. And then the, the, the front foot is like the, the, where the toe points to the target is the sight. And he may have the butt of the gun in the right direction, but the sight is like bent, like in the wrong direction, like on a regular basis. And it only gets corrected when the ball's at the apex of his release. And then it's like snapped into, into place. Oh my gosh. So what ends up happening is that his general accuracy is good because the butt of gun is facing in the right direction. But what happens is he's looking at, say, say he's looking at an over route and he'll drop back and there's maybe a two-man route combination where there's an over and there's an out and and then maybe a check down that leaks out later. So he'll drop back, see the stem, and he'll be opening his body to the stem knowing that it's going to break across so it looks like he's looking off in one direction. But when he goes back to throw to that open over that's breaking from that stem, his his back foot has the midline pointing to the where the target's going to be but his front toe still pointed to where he was looking at the stem so when he throws the ball he has to actually throw across his body and he doesn't get any of his hips into it the toe's not pointed so the target winds up like a half a step behind where the trail guy is and you see it over and over and over with his footwork no matter from whatever drop position you see this happening and at best there's a snap to where he snaps his feet back, but it doesn't matter at that point. It's too late when the ball's here. It's yeah. too late. So no. that's a tough one because some, there are a lot of coaches that believe below the waist is easy to fix. I am not of that belief. I believe it is easier than above the waist. Right. No doubt. 
But I still think certain guys, and the one that drives me even more nuts than that is the guy who picks up the front foot and brings it, basically putting it on the same yard line as his back foot and wants to throw as if he's facing the end zone. Yes. Those guys kill me because it's basically like you're saying, I am so gifted as a thrower that I don't have to worry about anything below my shoulders to throw it correctly. Yeah. And when you do that, I mean, what are the odds you're going to make it against the greatest athletes in the world? It makes me want to pull somebody's hair out. Yes. And it's a, and it's, and I think the tough thing about the lower body is, is that it's, yes, it can be fixed, like you said, but the, to break that down further for folks, it's what's difficult about it is, is that you're relying on the kid to spend the time to drill that and learn from somebody the right way to go about doing it and make the effort to do it while learning the game plan, learning the playbook, navigating the PR aspect of the position, navigating, you know, playing against higher end athletes and more complex defenses. And now you're asking them to go back and work on their fundamentals from a, after they're at this advanced of a level. That's a tough thing to do. It, well, it's just like the same reason we, we talked about. You mentioned Golden Tate and those guys. The number of receivers that I've seen come into the NFL who have improved their hands once they get to the NFL is, a, I mean, Julio Jones and Golden Tate are probably the two I can remember who improved their catch percentage. But it's hard because their whole life, just like with these quarterbacks with the bad footwork, their whole life, They've done it this way, and it achieved them getting to the NFL. Yeah. And now you're paying them a million bucks a year, and you expect them now to go change what got them there? Yeah. That's yeah. a hard sell mentally to a kid. Yeah. And the, I'll mention a couple more real quick, and then I want to hear some guys from you as well. Jermaine Burton, the Georgia transfer at Alabama. I got a chance to watch him. I think there's some, some decent, technically sound aspects of his route running that are going to make him a, a you know obviously a draftable player if he comes out um i i liked a lot of the skill he didn't strike me as a future star but he strikes me as someone who will maybe be able to become a good possession receiver in the league either as a third guy um on the on you know on the depth chart third or fourth guy and maybe develop into a second guy um, I was impressed with him and a guy who I've talked about before, but I'll, I'll bring it up again here because I'm interested to hear what you think of him down the line. If you've either seen him now or see him later is Stanford's Michael Wilson. He's a wide receiver. I have not looked at him. He yet. was a four star prospect who got hurt and missed the year for a while. He gives me that Juju Smith Schuster kind of Michael Thomas kind of um vibe in terms of how he could be used i thought he was the best route runner i've seen in this class thus far wow and, that's a big statement uh, yeah and it's kind of and i haven't seen you know i've seen i've watched you know well over 30 of the prospects and most of them are the top guys that are at least you know pre you know at least on the lists right now um and his route running had a lot of nuance to it um, hmm. And he's a pretty well-built guy who can work after the catch and and physical. So it kind of reminds me a little bit of Smith Schuster. Um, might be better inside than he is outside, but I think he can play flanker and play um, slot and be kind of that guy that does a little bit of a little bit of both. Um, 
So I, I'll be fascinated to see what you think of him. All right, I'm going to take a look now. So I got three guys, one NFL, two college. Uh, the NFL guy to me, and I'm going to screw his first name up, is Jamari Saylor, okay. the left tackle of the Chargers. And the reason he jumps out to me is, to me, he's a great lesson for young scouts. And trust me, it's not just young scouts. Look at where he went in the draft. He was a sixth-round pick. And I think the Chargers now realize they have a future starting, whether it's right tackle or left tackle, probably right, because they have Rashawn Slater for the future. But this is a kid that started 20-plus games at Georgia tackle. So he clearly played with some big boys as a tackle. But most NFL teams viewed him as a guard because he's under 6'4". He doesn't have gargantuan long arms. And he, when you look at him physically, he has a bigger, thicker lower body. You almost think guard. When you, when you see him on the hoof, you think, oh, that's a guard. But when you watch him play football, he has quick feet for a big guy. He plays longer because he knows how to use his hands and knows how to set the edge than a guy that's 6'3 and change. So it's one of those things I really – I'm a big believer in if you're scouting players that you think could be tackled, put height out of your thing. Now, I'm not saying you want a 5'11 guy. Right. But if they're 6'3 and above, don't worry about height. Refine Just the baseline. About, yeah, there's my baseline, 6'3. And I remember back to Vaughn Parker 20 years ago. Came out of UCLA, started in the league for a decade with 6'3". If you're 6'3", you have good feet, you know how to use your hands, you can do it. He's impressed me a lot. I think the Chargers got a steal. Uh, this past weekend, I was watching that Kansas State-TCU game, and they kept going to some receiver. I can't remember who it was, TCU. And they kept saying, well, they're picking on Julius Brents, this corner for Kansas State. And I kept watching him going, gosh, I sort of like what this Brents kid is doing. Now, he's gotten some penalties, but this kid's long and i went and looked him up he's almost 6'3 200 pounds and he's staying with this kid up and down the field now he needs some technique work and has to do a better job at turning his head quicker but i look at him and think oh man you don't find many 6'3 corners who are athletic enough to flip their hips who can run and seem to be good athletes in terms of changing direction so he he jumped out at me and this last guy is a guy that i think the as it, 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 it brings up a whole nother topic that I want to dive into in another one of our chats. Maybe next time we'll do it. I was watching film of Western Kentucky because they have a center named Rusty Stats, who's a Canadian kid, so I was watching their film. And as I, I do with any name. school, right, it's a great name. I mean, it's S-T-A-A-T-S. That is an all-timer name, Rusty right? Stats. Oh Rusty my God. Stats, right? I mean, that's perfect. So as I do when I go to watch any, another thing for scouts, young scouts to know is even if you're looking at one guy at a school, that doesn't mean just put on the film and watch Rusty stats. What it means is pull up the roster, see what other seniors are starting on offense. Because it doesn't mean you have to take detailed notes on them, but at least take a peek because if a guy does something good, then you can start taking notes. So I pulled up the film and they had two receivers and a quarterback that was seen. So I start watching film, and the quarterback named Austin Reed starts making some plays. And the ball comes out quick, and he's got a ridiculous arm. So I said, you know, let me go look at the Blesto National Combine list where they rank the players coming into their senior year, which is, to me, I think we need to dive into that topic because I don't think people realize where that list comes from, how it gets made, that sort of thing. And I Love think that. people would be blown away by learning about that. But I instantly see he wasn't even on the list because he was a late transfer from a different school. And at that school, 
he wasn't there for the pro day that they do for rising seniors. So he didn't get included in that school. And he was a late transfer here. So those coaches didn't even tell anybody at update. So he wasn't on the list. So I'm watching the film and his quick release, his arm strength, which is just ridiculous. I start going, wow. So I text somebody and he said, yeah, he said he was added. He's now a draftable player. So I was like, son of a gun. I thought I found a guy. But this kid, oh, he's fun to watch. The ball comes out. He's a little bit, and we've talked about these guys in the past, those quarterbacks who are very stiff in their back, who throw like barrel-chested almost. He has a little bit of that, which scares me, because a lot of those guys don't, mechanics-wise, never get it down. But, man, he is, at that level, he was dominant. And it had me thinking, oh, there's something here that's worth sort of taking a look at. So, he really intrigues me. I'm looking forward to grinding a little more film on him. I don't think he's going to be a CFO guy immediately because I do think he's going to get drafted in the NFL, but there's something about him that's really intriguing. That's awesome. And I can't wait to watch him then too. I've got, I'm watching quarterbacks this month and, and Brian, Brian, um, what's his name? Bryce Young is, is it Bryce Young? Yeah. Bryce Young yeah. is on the list. <laughs> To today he'll be on he'll be on later today i think i'll pick up austin reed after that um just for, the, just for the fun of it so that's awesome as always this was a fantastic conversation russ it's always a pleasure to have you as the co-host of this show and uh for those of you who listen out here and give us the feedback you do we appreciate you and uh of course you know again you can get the rsp at mattwaldmanrsp.com or mattwaldman.com just go immediately to buy it and if you're perversely want to wait because you want to pay me more money as a lot of you write me and tell me um I'm, hey i'm okay with that too just to let you know that'll be after the <laughs> 22nd you can start on the 23rd if you want but there thanks you go, again man. and you guys have a terrific week <laughs>